Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. It's Charles Marshall in on the Neil Garfield Show. It is Thursday, December 6, 2018. Good afternoon for those of you on the West Coast, and good evening heading in tonight for those of you on the East Coast. And as always, I am broadcasting live from Southern California, and I typically am on the Neil Garfield Show as as a host every other Thursday, and Neil will be back next Thursday. This show, as always, is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Live, and LendingLive.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Any amount that you're able to donate is appreciated. And you can donate directly by selecting the donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. And I'm happy to report that I have with me uh, today, Bill Padalo. Welcome, Bill. Good to be here, Charles. How are you today? I'm doing well. And Bill and I will be discussing a little bit later in the show uh, some developments and updates in his own killer rescission case. And the topic today does concern killer rescission. There is an interesting case out of Illinois and it came through the Supreme Court of Illinois and this case the short name is Financial Freedom Freedom Acquisition LLC versus Standard Bank and Trust Company and for those of you who had a chance to see Neil's blog on this the the Supreme Court opinion is excerpted there. Now, I will say there's some interesting angles to who the players are in this case. It's, it's not your typical foreclosure case. There are, again, a number of aspects to it that bear examination. One piece to this 
Now, who is financial freedom acquisition? Uh, I haven't done any investigation of them, and I know if, if Bill were to do that, he probably would be able to ferret out quite a few gems that would uh, be of interest to our listeners. Nevertheless, there are some surmises one one might make about who is who is this plaintiff who was ultimately the appellee in the Supreme Court decision. Uh, one of the, the interesting aspects to this case is that it involves a reverse mortgage. So it doesn't involve a conventional foreclosure situation. It involves a reverse mortgage uh, with an elderly borrower who took out a reverse mortgage for the reason that a lot of elderly persons will sometimes take out reverse mortgages to create a cash flow in the latter part of their life. And hence the name financial freedom acquisition. Again, this is your surmise. Uh, if listeners find out independent, different information, I'd, I'd love to hear details about this company. Uh, and again, as I always make this disclaimer on this show, nothing I'm about to say uh, is legal advice. I'm also not making any legal declarations. This uh, show is all about general presentation of legal topics, and it's meant to generate interest so that listeners themselves can then follow up with attorneys and others. But, yes, financial freedom acquisition sounds sounds very much like a company that would be engaged principally or at least partly in the providing of reverse mortgages. What's interesting is that the appellee here is One West Bank. So you do have the institutional lender in play, at play here, trying to yet again uh, ensure that their institutional prerogatives are, are always kept to their advantage. Now, Standard Bank and Trust Company, who are they? Well, the borrower herself is a regular individual who, again, took out a reverse mortgage. And, again, one, one can make certain surmises with these types of situations, and I think it's a reasonable surmise that she was looking for. A stream of payments, that's how reverse mortgages work. So rather than paying in, you're receiving money out every month. Of course, there has to be equity in the property. Otherwise, that's not possible. So who is Standard Bank and Trust Company? Standard Bank and Trust Company is an Illinois land trust. Now, Illinois land trusts are very interesting vehicles. They've been around uh, for many decades, uh, I believe even beyond that. And they are a vehicle for many things. One of the things they're a vehicle for is that even in a state like California or Arizona or Nevada, some people will place their real estate into an Illinois land trust because Illinois land trusts have various features. They have various provisions whereby the ultimate owner of the property can remain 
either anonymous or partly anonymous or under certain circumstances anonymous. Uh, there, there is also some liability limiting aspects to an Illinois land trust, though, like any liability limiting framework, legal framework, uh, and that's not the topic for today's show, there are exceptions, it's complicated, uh, whether that's really a useful liability limiting um, vehicle, is an open question. However, that's one of the purposes that people will sometimes use these Illinois land trusts for. And here, it appears to have been a way for the Standard Bank and Trust Company to limit their liability. In fact, the, the underlying note specifically disclaims liability going back to Standard Bank and Trust Company should there be issues with, with payment. And this is where this case gets fairly complicated because there isn't really um, – it's not a conventional default uh, that you would obviously see in a situation where the borrower stops paying and they're obligated to pay. Here, the situation and underlying fact situation is different than that because of the reverse mortgage aspect. However, it's still the case that financial freedom acquisition and One West Bank, they ended up uh, suing Standard Bank and Trust, a company, to enforce certain rights and remedies. And there, there basically was a foreclosure. Nevertheless, the legal issue here is, and that was a judicial foreclosure, because remember, Illinois is a judicial foreclosure case. Uh, but remember that the, the critical question here, for the purposes of this appeal and the Supreme Court opinion, the critical question is, could Standard Bank and Trust Company uh, basically use tiller rescission, which they did. They did rescind. Uh, and they, their purpose of rescinding, it's not altogether clear from the Supreme Court opinion uh, what that original purpose was, but there's no question that they did rescind, and there's discussion of that in the opinion. Now, this is, again, relating to the distinctions here. Normally, in a Tiller rescission case, the, the, uh, the obligor is what it's called that's the party obligated under the terms of the note and the party who is essentially going to live in the property and, and benefit from the terms of the loan that they're under, that party is, is basically a consumer in a consumer credit transaction situation and that party is the one who's living in the property. And again, typically the obligor and the one responsible for payments uh, related to the credit transaction that is uh, the note 
that's at the heart of any potential TILA rescission. That credit transaction aspect and the obligor, we're talking about the same party. Here we are not talking about the same party. The obligor is ultimately the, the Illinois Supreme Court found out the obligor is Standard Bank and Trust Company. And the consumer, for the purpose of the credit transaction, was the person taking out taking out the reverse mortgage. So that's one of the aspects of this case that, that make it complex. It's not entirely analogous to a lot of our own foreclosure situations, but there are some little nuggets in here that I think we can take forward. One of those nuggets is that there's no question that a reverse mortgage is a consumer transaction. And the reason for that consumer credit transaction. And the reason for that is because it's not a conventional mortgage loan. Yes, it involves a, a lien and it involves a real property. That's what creates the stream of payments. But the stream of payments is much more like a home equity line, or it's much more like even a credit card situation, even though here you clearly have a secured interest and a secured lien via the property itself. Uh, because the reason this matters is, remember, there are still, of the 13 federal appellate circuits out there, there are still some that, at least in some cases, will treat a fertility analysis. They will treat certain types of mortgages. For instance, uh, purchase money mortgage. More, mortgages when a, a buyer first purchases the property rather than refinancing. They will sometimes treat that type of creating purchase as basically not a consumer transaction, not a consumer credit transaction, because unless the TILA uh, event in question is considered an actual consumer credit transaction, then TILA does not, TILA doesn't apply. TILA never applies. Um, so, yes, you're going to have a consumer borrower in all of these situations, but the loan itself, whether that's a consumer credit transaction, is a legal issue in a lot of TILA matters. And it's not a given that just because it's a mortgage loan, the the circuits will, again, when I say circuits, I mean the federal appellate courts reviewing TILA lawsuits on appeal. Some will say all mortgages are consumer credit transactions. Some will say certain types of mortgages are consumer credit transactions. For instance, refinances will typically be looked at that way or a home equity line will typically be looked at that way. So here, another interesting aspect of this case is that there, there was an, a, a major factor in the lower case that wasn't addressed in the lower court order. And when Standard Bank and Trust Company rescinded, they were seeking statutory monetary uh, damages under TILA. 
Now, again, without seeing the pleadings at the lower level, uh, one is not able to say, and I'm certainly not going to, to, to surmise on this, how much that topic was explored. Was it, was it laid out quite clearly in uh, the original complaint, the operative complaint that ultimately was, uh, was a rule on? In fact, this was a counterclaim situation to make it even a little bit more complicated. Very many moving parts here. But the issue on appeal related to a counterclaim from Standard Bank. And remember, Standard Bank was essentially the original uh, defendant. And they counterclaimed. And when they counterclaimed, they were sent to the loan, and that was part of the basis for the counterclaim. And again, when they, when they did that, at some point, it sounds as if there was pleading related to them seeking statutory damages. Now, because that issue was never addressed on appeal in the – because that issue was never addressed in the lower court order, when that issue was raised on appeal, the Supreme Court found that, yes, that's an issue that should have been discussed in the lower court order – and originally, the intermediate appellate court, as remember, there's an appeal to the Illinois appellate court level, then that was ultimately appealed to the Illinois Supreme Court. The reason for that appeal was because at the, at the appellate level, the, the institutional people, one was, and it was found that Standard Bank one, couldn't avail itself of TILA rescission, and two, uh, the issue that they really wanted addressed, which was their monetary damages, because it wasn't in the order, therefore, they weren't allowed to talk about it in the appeal. And that's kind of uh, backwards thinking, which I think the Illinois Supreme Court is right on in, in, in finding this. They point out that the the Standard Bank and Trust Company, if there's no discussion in the order of their intent and apparently pleading to have monetary damages awarded to them because of their tiller rescission, since that was not discussed in the opinion, how could they appeal that as part of their order? And that's what the, uh, the appellate court used that against um, – The appellate court used that against uh, Standard Bank, and then the the Illinois Supreme Court ultimately found for Standard Bank and remanded the case, principally on this whole issue of statutory damages. So this is very much an interesting case. Uh, I think one of the takeaways and – Granted, this is somewhat limited, but there are a lot of other nuggets in here, and it's very much a case that's worth revisiting. Uh, one of the takeaways is that sometimes an institutional entity, in this case, when I say institutional, I mean very small I, 
because Standard Bank and Trust Company, this was, I believe, created based on what I can gather from the pleadings, specifically to specifically to uh, essentially provide a vehicle for the reverse mortgagor so that possibly she could remain anonymous or also they, Standard Bank and Trust Company, could disclaim any liability for failure to perform on her part. So it's interesting. This is this case, I think, does have uh, application, and certainly there are a lot of listeners out there. I suspect some of them are familiar with Illinois Land Trust. I suspect some of them even have an Illinois Land Trust. And it's important for you to know that under this ruling, you could use this ruling directly to appeal I don't mean appeal in a, in a legal sense of bringing an appellate case, but I mean uh, appeal in the sense of you have a legal argument for claiming that an Illinois land trust may avail, avail itself of tiller rescission, that this is clearly a unavailable vehicle. Uh, I'm interested now, Bill, in bringing you in to talk about some developments in your TILA case uh, so that uh, listeners know the latest in your area. Sure, no problem. Thanks, Charles. Good uh, good analysis there. I, I appreciate you uh, taking on most of the show today. I was anticipating being able to talk about a pretty interesting case where we're having success um, that uh, it could certainly be applied universally in, in many cases, but unfortunately, um, the uh, the party doesn't really want, uh, even generically, the case discussed at this time. So I'm going to certainly respect those wishes. Um, and, and it's frustrating because we have there are a lot of successful cases and successful things that are going on um, out there. And unfortunately, uh, many of them I'm still. Uh, just not able to discuss openly, um, but I do look forward to being able to at some point in time. But for for listeners who really are pessimistic and think that um, it's all bad out there and no one wins or has success, I, I, I have to say uh, it's not really truly the case. There are success stories. But um, anyhow, touching on the TILA issue and my own personal case, uh, for those who have listened to the show or have followed um, I had rescinded my loan uh, on a WAMU loan back in 2008 prior to WAMU's uh, failure and receivership with the FDIC. And uh, I filed on the heels of the Jezinoski decision, uh, my declaratory action in federal court in the 9th in uh, Eugene, Oregon. Uh, the analysis initially in denying Chase's motion to dismiss um, uh, the the judge did a very good analysis, and uh, my case has actually been cited many times in, in cases in the Ninth and elsewhere. Um, and, and the key ruling initially was the, talking about the effect of rescission. Basically, uh, rescission is effective upon mailing, period, and it voids the security instruments, and that's what the court had come out and analyzed and what's cited too often. And I'll read the words just in a, a case that was just cited in 
Heinrichsen versus Bank of America in um, the Northern District in California, but they said, in other words, when the unwinding process is not completed and neither party files suit within the TILA statute of limitations, Jezinoski directs that the rescission and voiding of the security interests are effective as a matter of law as of the date of notice, and they cite to my case. So on my appeal, because the, the court had uh, reversed itself and had granted Chase uh, judgment in the lower court, and I had to appeal, and the Ninth Circuit this past summer came out, and vacated Chase's judgment on the grounds that the court lacked subject matter jurisdiction. Basically, the Chase could not have acquired uh, my loan through the FIREA FDIC process simply because uh, the effect of the rescission occurred prior to the receivership. So uh, where did that leave me? Uh, well, it's a title issue. Um, if the effect of my rescission was that the security instruments were void by operation of law in 08, uh, clearly nothing passed forward from that point. So uh, I filed uh, a complaint for ejectment in the uh, state court in Oregon uh, seeking to get possession of my property back. The current occupants that I served with the suit had purchased the property uh, from J.P. Morgan Chase with a list pendants on the property. So uh, they were put on notice that there was a dispute over title, and uh, they were issued a special warranty deed in that transaction. And under Oregon law, uh, if you purchase a property with a list pendants, the conveyance uh, – that you receive for that transfer is void as to the party who uh, put the public on notice with the list pendant, so to myself. So anyhow, I filed the, uh, the action, and lo and behold, I find out that the occupants were given a, a uh, owner's policy, title policy, which is um, kind of unusual because, you know, from all my research, title companies, uh, that's a huge red flag, uh, having a list pendants on title, and uh, it appears to me that the title company just simply missed it. But anyhow, um, where I sit right now is they've answered the complaint, but there really isn't a, any kind of an affirmative defense to a valid rescission. And, um, and so now uh, it appears uh, summary judgment motion is probably the next uh, step here very soon. Um, but from their posture and their position and their answer, uh, there, there clearly doesn't appear to be any sort of an affirmative defense. And uh, so it's a title issue, basically. And um, I'm seeking uh, not only possession, but lost uh, rent and damages for deferred maintenance and everything for the last eight years that um, the current occupants have been in possession. So that's where I'm at. That's excellent. And that uh, recounting, it brings up an angle that actually – intersects the uh, the two cases, yours and the Illinois Supreme Court one. And that aspect is when, when the Tiller rescission happened in the Illinois case, the, the actual providing of the Tiller closing documents, they were only provided to the reverse mortgage mortgagor, the borrower, in effect. 
the borrower, the credit, the credit taker, so to speak, of the uh, the reverse mortgage setting up the stream of payments. So, in other words, she got the TILA documents as the consumer borrower. However, the Standard Bank and Trust Company never, never got their copy. They actually were slated to get a copy. A copy was drawn up. It was never provided. And that was uh, one of the reasons why the holding went the way it did. What's interesting to me about that is I don't think the providing of those documents needs to happen or not happen as a factual matter for Tiller rescission to be effective because, as Neil has said, and it's consistent with what you're saying now, whether that happened or not, it has to be vetted in a lawsuit. And if neither the borrower or, more pointedly, the institutional player, the so-called holder of the note, if they didn't go after uh, the borrower within the 20-day period after rescission, they would have to challenge that at that time. But we are out of time. I appreciate your time, uh, Bill, and we will be back. Neil will be back next week. We, We will be back soon. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.